0: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 237, The King's Speech. Last week we talked about the efforts by the Continental Congress to bring other European powers into the war against Britain in 1779. This week I want to look at the situation, also in late 1779, from the perspective of the British government. For the king, the year had not been a good one. It got off to a difficult start when it was revealed that the government had broken up a plot to assassinate the king in late 1778. Much of 1779 was spent in divisive hearings. The Navy became deeply divided as a result of courts-martial related to the naval battle of Ushant. Then Parliament held hearings into the loss of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, which divided both the army and the ministry itself. The naval courts-martial of Admirals Keppel and Palliser dragged through the spring of 1779, And as I said, this led to riots, it led to divisions within the naval leadership, uh, it affected political leaders, and the whole mess actually threatened to bring down the first Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Sandwich. He only avoided censor by Parliament when he successfully appealed to his friend in the House of Lords to put off the censor vote shortly after Sandwich's lover was assassinated by a jealous suitor. By late 1779, the British Navy and the administration that ran it was a divided mess. Before they could put those matters even behind them, Parliament decided to hold hearings over the summer of 1779 regarding the surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. General Burgoyne had returned to London by early 1778 after receiving parole. He was doing whatever he could to protect his reputation. General William Howe also returned to London in late 1778 after the ministry accepted his resignation as commander of North American forces. Howe also wanted a hearing to protect his own reputation. On top of that, Admiral Richard Howe also returned, having resigned his command in North America and was looking to clear his good name. Generals Burgoyne and Howe both demanded courts-martial, but the ministry did not want to deal with the matter publicly so the ministry really did nothing. Parliament then formed itself into a committee of the whole in the spring of 1779 to give both men a platform to state their cases. During the hearings, both generals largely blamed Secretary of State Lord Germain for the lack of coordination and the loss of the army at Saratoga. One of the leading opponents in this mess was a member of Parliament by the name of Charles Fox. He was one of the leading opponents of the war and of the North Ministry more generally. He tried to use these hearings to go after Lord Germain politically. According to some accounts, Fox actually met with General Burgoyne shortly after he returned to Britain on parole. At that point, Burgoyne blamed General Howe for leaving him without support in upstate New York. Fox, however, convinced Burgoyne that Germain was responsible for all of his problems. Parliament concluded the hearings in the summer, but didn't reach any conclusions or assign any blame. So, the dispute continued to play out in the newspapers and in conversations around London. Members of the Carlisle Commission also returned from America, frustrated that the ministry's policies had undercut any hope of a negotiated peace. Joseph Galloway, the Pennsylvanian who had thrown in with the Loyalists following the First Continental Congress, and who had become the leader of colonial loyalists in Britain, savaged General Howe for his weak and tepid prosecution of the war. On top of all that, General Howe's mother, who was related to the royal family, publicly accused Lord Germain of feeding disparaging information about her sons to the newspapers. The whole affair threatened to bring down the ministry for a time. Several lower-level officials did resign in protest, The King and Lord North, however, really wanted to keep Germain in his post. They feared that any replacement would be less willing to prosecute the war as aggressively as needed. The public blame for the failure at Saratoga, and more largely the continuing failures of the war in America, would just continue on for years. This was the case despite efforts by the King and the Ministry to put aside the blame and get on with winning the war. By the fall of 1779, the ministry ordered General Burgoyne to return to America and return to his captivity with soldiers who were still being held as prisoners of war. This would put Burgoyne out of the public limelight and back in America, where hopefully people would forget about him. General Burgoyne refused to go. As a result, he was forced to resign all of his government positions, and this left him pretty much financially ruined. He did retain his seat in Parliament and became an embittered foe of the ministry. General Howe had a family and position that could not be taken away so easily. However, he did lose his re-election to Parliament in 1780 and lost all influence with the government for the remainder of the North Ministry. He published a defense of his work in America, which only continued the controversy and put more pressure on Lord Germain. Galloway wrote a response, which dumped that blame right back on General Howe. All of these political fights were playing out while Spain declared war on Britain, and a joint French-Spanish fleet was preparing to take out the British Navy and facilitate an invasion of Great Britain in the spring of 1779. In London, various lords were actually placing bets on when and how large an invasion force would land. The only reason one didn't was that a smallpox epidemic in the French and Spanish fleets prevented that invasion from happening. While the invasion never materialized, a siege of British-occupied Gibraltar did begin in June, thus taxing the British Navy's already diminished capacity. Also amidst all these scandals, and near the end of Parliament's session in June, Prime Minister Lord North wrote to the King offering his resignation, once again, and suggesting a replacement. The king simply ignored the request and continued on. The king felt that, like Germain, if North stepped down, his replacement would likely seek a negotiated peace in America so that Britain could end the threat it now faced against France and Spain. The problems of 1778 led to a consensus developing in London of compromise and cutting one's losses. The conventional wisdom among the elites in London was that not only was the loss of North America at risk, but also valuable sugar islands in the West Indies were under threat, and Gibraltar and Menorca were also vulnerable. And even Britain itself was obviously a target. The government was highly unpopular, and Prime Minister North seemed to have all but given up. The last parliamentary elections had taken place in 1774, Meaning that elections would be required again in 1780. Given the tenor of the country, Parliament would almost certainly return those elections with many more members looking to end the war at whatever cost. One of the few leaders who was determined to continue the fight was King George himself. In June of 1779, the King wrote to Lord North stating that, quote, No inclination to get out of the present difficulties can incline me to enter into what I look upon as the destruction of the Empire. The present contest with America I cannot help as seeing as the most serious in which any country has ever engaged. Whether the laying of a tax was deserving of all the evils that have arisen from it, I suppose no man could allege that without being thought more fit for bedlam, an insane asylum, than a seat in the Senate, but the step-by-step demands of America have risen. Independence is their object. That certainly is one that every man not willing to sacrifice every object to a momentary and inglorious peace must concur with me in thinking that this country can never submit to. Should America succeed in that, the West Indies must follow. Ireland must soon follow the same plan and be a separate state, then this island should be reduced to itself and soon be a poor island indeed. So, the king basically saw American independence as the end of Britain itself and followed an early version of the domino theory where the loss of the American colonies would simply lead to the loss of others as well. Britain could not just sacrifice a few colonies for the greater good. These colonies were fundamental to the future of the British Empire. Around the same time, the king called together his top ministers for an informal meeting. Several ministers later expressed fear that they had been brought in for a mass dismissal. Instead, the king wanted to encourage them to remain committed to the cause. He told them that his only regret in the events leading up to the war was his decision to change ministers in 1765 and then to accede to the new prime minister's decision to repeal the Stamp Act the king now saw that repeal as a sign of weakness in this test of wills with the colonies. That is probably what emboldened them to go to war. What was needed in 1779 was no sign of weakness. The ministry would stand firm and resolute in its governance of the colonies. Besides, the king also believed that holding out a little longer would almost certainly result in victory. A few weeks later, in another note to Lord North, the king commented that he had, long entertained that America, unless this summer is supported by a bourbon fleet, must sue for peace, but that propositions must come from them to us. No further ones to be sent from hence. They ever tend to only increase the demands. But while peace was hopefully just around the corner, the king did not think the ministry could simply couch in a defensive position to protect Britain itself. It needed to spread its military throughout the empire and protect all of its colonies. He was willing to risk an attack on Britain itself if it meant deploying more forces to other parts of the empire that remained in danger. In a letter to Lord Sandwich, the king noted, quote, We must be ruined if every idea of offensive war is to lie dormant until this island is thought in a situation to defy attacks. If ministers will take a firm, decided part and risk something to save the Empire, I am ready to be foremost on the occasion, as my stake is the deepest. But if nothing but measures of caution are pursued and further sacrifices are made from a want of boldness, which alone can preserve a state when hard-pressed, I shall certainly not think myself obliged after a conduct shall have been held so contrary to my opinion to screen them from the violence of an enraged nation. In other words, the king was saying that the people were going to be so upset that the ministry had lost its colonies from a lack of a really bold policy, that they were going to rise up against the government, and that the king would not stand there as their protector. For the king, victory was going to be a test of wills. The colonies would not have the will to hold out much longer. The king saw his job as shoring up the will of his government to do everything possible to protect all parts of the empire until the other side broke. Until then, he would keep Lord North as prime minister. He would keep Lord Germain as secretary of state. He would continue to put pressure on opponents of the war and those who thought to bring down the ministry. Most of all, he would continue to push for the use of the British army and navy to advance the cause of the empire, whatever the cost. Another big issue for the ministry in 1779 was discontent in Ireland. With the threatened French invasion and the fear of attack by American privateers, Britain had had to grow its local militias to protect the homeland. These men were volunteers who saw the need to organize and be ready to protect their homes against possible attacks. Ireland, of course, faced its own internal threat. Irish Catholics, who were denied even basic rights, such as the right to own property, were ready to revolt whenever possible. Prior to the war in America, Britain kept about 8,000 regulars in Ireland to put down any such budding rebellions. But as the war in America grew... About half of those regulars in Ireland were deployed to America, leaving the British particularly weak there. Britain had always been uncomfortable about too much military training for subjects outside of England. An empowered people in places like Scotland or Ireland could result in new rebellions. Militia in Ireland was limited to the Protestant population. There was no way the ministry was going to trust Irish Catholics with guns or give them military training. That only increased the risk of violence and conflict. Now, that limited most of the Irish militia to Northern Ireland, where most of the Irish Protestants lived. By 1779, 42,000 Irish Protestant volunteers were on the muster rolls. London reluctantly provided arms, but uniforms and other necessities were a local responsibility. But even the Irish Protestants had their own political complaints. When the war in America had begun, officials in London placed an embargo on the export of Irish food products or just about anything else needed for the war effort. The reason for the export ban was to guarantee a cheap source of supplies for the army. The government didn't want to compete for those items with other buyers throughout the empire. This trade restriction created a great financial hardship for the Protestant landowners in Ireland who lost markets for their produce. When the Irish Parliament met in the fall of 1779, Britain had already removed some of its most burdensome elements of the embargo. But restrictions still in place made life difficult. Members of the Irish Parliament debated motions demanding free trade rules from London. After the opening of the Irish Parliament, Irish militia volunteers appeared in Dublin as well, demanding free trade for their exports. They appeared in uniform and under arms. The Volunteers called for action on their demands. On November 4th, the Volunteers decorated a statue of William of Orange with placards, including one that read, Free Trade or Else. A protest outside of the Irish Parliament a little over a week later made clear that the lack of action on the free trade issue would result in greater trouble. Inside the Irish Parliament, Opponents of the protests objected that such behavior was unacceptable and that Ireland was at peace. In response, another member of Parliament, Hussey Berg, remarked that, quote, talk not to be of peace. Ireland is not at peace. It is smothered war. England has sown her laws as dragon's teeth, and they have sprung up in armed men. But as much as members of the Irish Parliament saw the problem and the need to fix it, they were unable to grant the reforms demanded by the protesters. Those reforms had to come from London. On November 25th, the King addressed the opening of the new session of Parliament in London. He began by noting that the French threat to invade Britain had failed, quote, by the blessings of providence, but that it still remained a concern. He also noted that Ireland had become a problem. The King did not recommend specific course of action, but did recommend that Parliament address the issue. Parliament would quickly pass several provisions that allowed Ireland first to export wool and glass. A bit more contentious was a more general bill that permitted complete free trade between Ireland and all parts of the British Empire. This also passed in recognition that Britain could not afford an Ireland that would cause additional problems for the country while it was still at war. The king also noted in his address that the war was prosecuted with great expense, which was creating hardship. And he called upon the wisdom and public spirit of the members to continue to provide what was necessary. He also thanked the militia, which had doubled in size in Britain, upon the threat of a French invasion. He ended his remarks by saying, "...trusting in the divine providence and in the justice of my cause." I am firmly resolved to prosecute the war with vigor and to make every exertion in order to compel our enemies to listen to equitable terms of peace and accommodation. In other words, Britain would have to continue to endure the cost of the war in order to bring about an acceptable peace. While some members rose to speak in support of the king, Charles Fox voiced his concerns. He noted the result of the policies pursued over the last few years that the king found, quote, his empire dismembered, his councils distracted, his people falling off in their fondness for his person. He then seemed, indirectly at least, to question the king's legitimacy to the throne, noting that George's, quote, claim to the throne of this country was founded only upon the delinquency of the Stuart family. This attack, even obliquely to the legitimacy of the king to sit on the throne of Great Britain, was coming dangerously close to treason. But it was also a reminder that when the king used his status to promote a controversial policy, he risked the entire monarchy on the success of that policy. Prime Minister North, also very unpopular, had told several people that he only remained in office because the king would not allow him to resign. While this was true, it tied the king even more directly to those government policies— that were incurring the wrath of the people. The king was relying on his most hardcore members of the cabinet to keep the war effort going. The Secretary of State of American Affairs, Lord Germain, was one of those men. Because he shared the king's view that the war had to be prosecuted with vigor, he did remain in the king's good graces. At the same time, it also made him a lightning rod for Parliament for criticism of the war. Later, in the parliamentary session, a vote to eliminate Lord Germain's position failed by only seven votes. With the war increasing both debt and taxes, many people were questioning the government in ways that were unprecedented. The Out of Doors Movement developed a political organization that was made up of people who were not in Parliament. They questioned not only the war spending, but the government waste and corruption that was hurting taxpayers. They began calling for reforms in Parliament's representation closer to actual populations and drawing on rhetoric similar to the calls of taxation without representation that had taken hold in the colonies. So, the danger for the king was that the more he tied himself personally to the policies of the government, he risked popular wrath as those policies became more unpopular. Nevertheless, the king would not allow the government to fall and would not allow the ministry to back away from holding on to America at all costs that was how important he saw british rule in north america next week we're going to return to america for the court martial of benedict arnold this episode is brought to you by ebay motors Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. I'm also pleased to welcome Farron Shear, Katherine Anderson, as standard bearers. Also thanks to David Rice and John Wallers, who upgraded from Minuteman to standard bearer, as well as Eric Larson, who upgraded from Sons of Liberty to standard bearer. Now, Eric, I should add, is my very first Patreon supporter. In fact, the reason I started my Patreon account was because Eric, who did not know me at the time, emailed me to say that I really should start a Patreon account, so I have him to thank for that. Eric also runs his own podcast, The Paradox, which explores medical issues. Eric's wife Marcy also has her own podcast called Always Andy's Mom, which deals with the loss of a child. I also wanted to give a shout out to Ron Polka, who has been a standard bearer supporter for many months now. Ron wrote to me last week about not having received any flag magnets for several months. Now, it turned out there must have been some sort of delivery issue, but I'm very glad that he reached out to me so that I could try to make things right. As I prepare and mail all of the flag magnets myself, and as my list of donors has grown, my monthly task has also grown. So, it's probably inevitable that I may make some mistakes. So, if you think you should be receiving something from me and you're not, please do email me. You can message me through Patreon, or you can email me directly. My address, which also appears on my website, is mtroy.history at gmail.com. Just so everyone knows, if you contribute at the standard bearer level or higher, that's at least $10 a month, I will send you a magnet each month with a different flag from the Revolutionary War. If you make a pledge during the month, you don't get charged until the first of the following month, and then after that, I update my list of all my supporters and send out the magnets. So, there is always some delay, and sometimes I get even further behind myself. In December, I was too caught up in other things, so I ended up sending the December and January magnets out together, and I just managed to do that on the last day of the month. I am trying to put myself on a better schedule, so I don't keep getting that far behind. Also, if you haven't entered a mailing address on Patreon, or if at one time you requested not to get a magnet, then you're not going to get one. If anyone in this category changes their mind or wants to add an address, please reach out to me and let me know. I'm more than happy to start sending the magnets. Some folks have moved and not updated their addresses, so sometimes I get returns. I usually try to reach out via email to get an updated mailing address, but if you know you're moving and you think about it, please let me know. Anyway, that's my way of asking for your forgiveness and forbearance if I screw up on a promised delivery. And as I said, please do reach out to me if you think you're waiting for something. I will do everything I can to make things right. This week, I covered the King's speech to the opening of Parliament in the fall of 1779. The main point that I hoped to make this week was that the King was setting himself up as the face of British policy toward the American colonies. For decades prior to this, the British monarchy had made an effort to stay above controversial political issues, and probably because of the fallout from King George III, the royal family has made a renewed effort to remain aloof a policy that remains in place to this day. When a king or queen takes a position on a controversial issue and that policy becomes a failure, it threatens the institution of the monarchy itself. They have found that it is best to let the ministries rise and fall based on policy changes and to keep the crown above politics. But George III tested that truism. He really took an active role in keeping the efforts to force the colonies to remain colonies, far beyond anything most other political leaders of the time were willing to do. To be fair, George saw this as a fundamental issue that left the survival of the British Empire at issue itself. But in taking such an active role, he was gambling with the monarchy itself. Britain was facing the first parliamentary elections in 1780 since the war began. The war was terribly unpopular and elected officials knew this. Thanks mostly to the King setting the tone, the North Ministry managed to remain in office, even though many seats in that election would move over to the opposition. If things did not turn around soon, the government would not be able to continue the war. The other issue I touched on today was the growing troubles in Ireland. During this time, Ireland was essentially a colony. It had its own parliament, but the British parliament, where the Irish were not represented, made many laws that impacted the people of Ireland. The situation in Ireland was one of the cautionary tales that made the American colonies fight so hard to protect their liberties. Britain would finally give representation to Ireland in the British Parliament in 1801. That was also when the red stripes were added to the St. Andrew's Cross on the Union Jack, representing Ireland's full integration into the United Kingdom. Of course, even these attempts did not really resolve things, and Britain would eventually have to recognize an independent Irish Republic in 1919. My book recommendation this week is The Last King of America by Andrew Roberts. I won't go into too much detail because I interviewed Mr. Roberts about this book last year. I think it is a good book from the era, from the perspective of the king, and if you haven't read it yet, you should consider it. My online recommendation is The Narrative of Lieutenant General Sir William Howe. This is a printed copy of General Howe's defense of his actions as a general in the war. It's based on his testimony in Parliament from 1779. The 1781 version of the publication that I've linked to on archive.org also contains a copy of Joseph Galloway's rebuttal. For my question this week, Tyler Brinson asks, Why did Canadian citizens never rally to the American cause? I imagine that with a rebellion in Quebec, Burgoyne wouldn't have been able to stage his invasion from Canada and Halifax would not have been a safe haven for the British. Well, Tyler, many future Canadians were sympathetic to the American cause. Many of the colonists living in the area around Newfoundland were actually New Englanders who had migrated north. They had close ties to the patriots who rebelled. However, the population in these colonies was very light, and the British had a naval base at Halifax, which controlled the region. As such, the locals did not have much opportunity to rebel. In the first couple of years of the war, many Loyalists from New England had to flee their homes, and many of these Loyalists came to Canada, thus making the demographics of the region much more decidedly Tory. Quebec was an interesting case as well. Most of the inhabitants there were still French-speaking Catholics. Many of them were concerned after Britain took control of Quebec at the end of the Seven Years' War that they might be expelled like the French Acadians were. The Acadians, whom the British expelled, ended up in Louisiana, where the word Acadian eventually became Cajun. The people of Quebec mostly hoped to keep their land and not be expelled. They did not have a tradition of self-rule under France, and things probably got better for most of them under British rule. Britain allowed them to continue the use of the French language and to practice Catholicism. It even gave them access to settle the Ohio Valley. Britain went out of its way at the outset of the war to point out how anti-Catholic New England was. Massachusetts, for example, once made it a capital offense for a Catholic priest to enter the colony. Even at the time that all this was happening, the people of Boston annually hanged the Pope in effigy. So, the British stressed to the French Quebecois that they might fare badly under New England's rule. Americans did send people who encouraged Quebec to join the cause. They flooded the area with political pamphlets and proclamations, encouraging them to join. The French heard both sides, but they knew that being on the losing side of a rebellion, could change everything for them. So, they simply wanted to be on the winning side. The Americans, realizing the importance of a united continent, made several attempts to take Quebec, the first being under General Richard Montgomery and Colonel Benedict Arnold in 1775. That effort mostly failed because the Continental Army was wiped out by smallpox. The Americans did make several more attempts to put together an army of liberation, including one headed by the Marquis de Lafayette. But none of those could get off the ground due to a lack of resources. After the British landed a large military force at Quebec in the spring of 1776, the Americans could not raise a large enough force to make a serious attempt to retake Quebec. The local inhabitants did what they had to do to survive and proclaim loyalty to the king. The arrival of more loyalists from the lower colonies further secured the region. Even so, the Americans did hope that Quebec would eventually join them. The Articles of Confederation contained a clause that representatives from Quebec were welcome to join the Confederation at any time without a further vote. So yes, the continental leadership very much saw the advantages of bringing Canada on board with the revolution, but they never had the resources to make it happen. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.